be sure and take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 1 today in our study of the book of Galatians. Um, if you forgot your Bible this morning, grab uh, one of the red Bibles in the pew rack there in front of you and go about two-thirds of the way, and you should run right into Galatians. Uh, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock here in the auditorium will be our first quarterly business meeting of the year. Now, this is an important meeting, and I'll tell you why. We are going to be hearing a recommendation from our Constitution and Bylaws team. They're about halfway through a review of our Constitution and Bylaws, and they have some recommendations for us tonight. And so you need to be here and be a part of hearing their recommendations and discussing those recommendations. That'll be at uh, 6 o'clock tonight. And again, just a reminder, be sure and mark April 27 on your calendars. That is a day we have set aside to serve our city called Love Jacksonville. It's just an opportunity for folks from both of our campuses to go out and serve our city. If you have questions about Love Jacksonville, please see Rick Casey or call the church office. I know that many of you are aware that just a few days ago, a man who I believe to be demonic walked into a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, where he killed 50 people and where an additional 50 were wounded. I also believe on February 26 in Nos, Nigeria, uh, some individuals who were also demonic walked into a Christian community where 32 Christians were killed and many more were injured. Now church, as Southern Baptists, we believe that religious liberty means the freedom to worship according to one's own conscience and to worship without fear. It is one of our most precious freedoms that should be enjoyed by every person on the face of the earth. Today we grieve with our Christian and with our Muslim um, neighborhoods. We weep with them and we stand unequivocally against these evil, evil acts. And that is exactly what they are. Now, you may have a question, when will these things end? The answer is simple, when Jesus comes. Uh, Maranatha is an Aramaic word that means the Lord is coming, or come Lord Jesus. It is a word that was used often in the first century even, as Romans were persecuting Christians. And so when we hear of reports like these and read of reports like these, our hearts are all the same. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, a celebration of worship. Thank you for reminding us that it was at Calvary where we were set free from the chains of sin and death. Today we are celebrating the beauty and the hope and the freedom that is found in the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Father, as we now look to the Word of God, may your Spirit 
Teach us as your word guides us. And may your glory be our chief concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody has a story. Last semester, um, Jesse, our college pastor, baptized a young man by the name of Taylor. Uh, Before coming to engage, Taylor described himself as non-religious. But after overhearing conversations uh, between his roommate and another student who were talking about our college worship called Engage that meets here on Monday nights at 8 p.m., Taylor listened to that conversation and started learning about God. He became interested in checking out Engage. Uh, The night he came, God moved in his life in such a way that when worship had ended, he turned to his friend and told him that he was ready to give his life to Christ. And of course, three weeks later, Jesse baptized him alongside five others who came to Christ last semester. Just this week, I had the privilege of listening to Damaris' story. You just saw Damaris be baptized. And Damaris shared with me as a young 21-year-old man who grew up not far from here that uh, the last time he remembers attending church was when he was in the fifth grade. And as he grew up, the things of God were just not on his radar. And so after listening to his story and just sharing with him my story, it was a great celebration to see him turn from his sin and place his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Everybody has a story, dear ones. I heard of two little boys who were playing in a sandbox when one of them asked, I wonder where we came from. I wonder what our story is. And so one little boy said, well, I don't know, but mom and dad are inside the house. I'm going to go ask. And so he got up and went inside. He came to his mother who was in the kitchen and asked where she had come from um, and um, where she had come from as a baby. And so uh, her mother gave him a tale about a beautiful white feathered bird. Well, the boy asked his uh, father the same question and received a variation of the bird story. And so he went back outside and his playmate said, well, what did you find out? What's our story? He said, well, I'm not sure where we came from, but I know there hasn't been a normal birth in our family in at least three generations. Everybody has a story. And everybody's story should matter to us. Do you know why? Because everybody matters to God. And so, therefore, they should matter to us. We all have a story, right? We all have the ability to say, this is who I used to be. This is where I used to go. This is what I used to do. This is what I used to think. And now, this is who I am in Jesus Christ. We all have a story. The text that was read for you today that we're examining is Paul's story. This is the Apostle Paul telling his story, reminding us of what we learned last week, that the gospel is a message of rescue. 
Paul showed us that there is nothing we can do, no lessons, no steps, no rules that we can follow to get us out of the spiritual death that we were born into. And so Jesus comes to rescue us from us, right? He died in our place. He died the death that we deserved to die. He died in order that we could have new life, abundant and rich and full and free. Dear ones, how could that ever be just commonplace to us? That Jesus Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. So how could that be common? How could that be a story we not shout from the rooftops? And yet, so often, we keep it to ourselves. Or maybe even worse, we become just like the people in the churches that we're studying. The Galatians deserted the gospel. When some people came to distort, remember it's a word that means to reverse. So when some people crept into the church to add works to the gospel, they began to leave the gospel of grace. And so Paul reminded them that you and I should be more alarmed by people not those who overtly deny the gospel, but by those who creep into the church and then begin to tell us all, you know what, the gospel is good and it's fine and it's grand, but you know, we can improve upon it. And that's what was happening in the churches of Galatia. Right now, Paul loved the churches of Galatia. You know why? He's from Tarsus. It's not far from here. He was there on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. These churches were planted in Iconium and Antioch and Lystra and Derbe. And then he comes back on his second missionary journey. He comes back on his third missionary journey. But when he finds out that they had abandoned the gospel, he is astonished. And so maybe even as early as 18 months, some would suggest, after he hears this report that they have abandoned the gospel of grace, he writes, this letter to them and he gives his story you know why Paul is giving his story here in chapter 1 think about what the false teachers have crept into the church are doing their goal right is to twist the gospel and one of the ways that they twist the gospel is that they try to call into question the character and integrity of the person who is doing the preaching of the gospel and so what are they doing? They're attacking Paul. They're attacking his character. They're attacking his ministry. They're attacking his calling as an apostle. And so Paul is, in a sense, here at the end of chapter 1, defending himself. And by doing so, he raises a series of questions that all of us here today should answer. Question number one, are you a people pleaser or a God pleaser? Right? Paul says immediately in verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? The Judaizers said Paul came to the Gentile world and he wanted to please men. His desire was to be popular with the crowd. He wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be liked. And so what does he do? He strips the gospel of any works so that it would not be difficult for Gentiles to come to personal faith in Christ. And that's the claim that they were charging him with. These false teachers were saying if Paul was telling the truth, if he was being honest... He would have demanded that these Gentile believers be circumcised and follow Mosaic traditions. He just stripped it out because he wanted to make the gospel easy. Two weeks ago in a church in Africa, I'm sure you've read about this, a pastor raised a man from the dead um, in a worship service. It was shouted from the outside. A hearse pulls up to the front. There's a body in a casket. The pastor goes outside. Uh, the people driving the casket said, um, we were driving past the church and we saw his fingers move. Speaking of the man laying in the casket. It's interesting because, I, and I watched the video, it's interesting that when they opened the door to the hearse and pulled the casket out, it was completely covered. So they opened it, and he puts his hand on the man's chest and pushed into his chest, and the guy raises up and starts breathing, and he's raised a man from the dead. Their offerings were probably larger than they had ever had. They probably never even looked at the fact that when they opened the casket, the man was sweating. Should have been a clue, right? And just yesterday I was reading that um, a TV station began an investigative research and found out that the church was actually going out and paying people who were not from that area to come in and claim certain diseases and illnesses and then they would be healed in front of everybody. All to gather a crowd, all to pad their pockets, all in the name of God. So here are these false teachers accusing Paul of being a people pleaser. And the fact of the matter is they were the ones that were people pleasers because they were coming in and saying to everybody, we think it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you know what? you got to be circumcised if you really want to be a part of the covenant community. And, by the way, you got to follow all the Mosaic traditions. And so Paul says, Am I trying to be a people pleaser or a man pleaser? Because if I'm trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The gospel that I gave you, he's saying to the churches of Galatia, was not based on tradition. It was not based on ritual. It was not based on self-effort. It was not based on self-salvation. Jesus gave me the gospel when he changed me, and now I gave it to you. So there, he's saying you are bondservants of Jesus Christ. And by the way, dear ones, this is an important question for us today. Are you a people pleaser or a God pleaser? And you know why it's important? You can't be both. It's not both and. You're going to stand 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ and declare the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, come what may, or you're going to soften the blow, tickle the ear, and pack your place out. You either serve Christ or you serve people. Let me just quickly move on. Secondly, have you forgotten how the gospel changed you? Well, that's what Paul does in verse 13. You've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now Paul is getting very personal. Prior to accepting Christ, he's telling us he was a persecutor of the church. He did everything in his power to destroy the church. The word persecuted emphasizes a persistent and continual intent to harm. The word destroy that he uses here was a word that was used of soldiers that would come in and literally ravage a city. Paul's intent was to utterly extinguish the church. And notice he says here, I was advancing in Judaism. The word advancing gives a picture of a person on the cutting edge of a forest who's blazing a trail, right? He's got a hatchet and he's just going through and he's cutting down everything in his path to make a trail through a forest. And that's the same word that Paul uses here. Paul was saying, I was getting rid of anything and everything that was in the way of Judaism. As a devout Pharisee, he was outdone by no one. You can look in Acts 8.3. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Acts 9, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. You have it again in Acts 22. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. He says, I even obtained letters from them for their brothers in Damascus and went to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem. Even later in Acts 26, on the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison when they were put to death and I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So here's the first part of Paul's story. And what Paul is saying to the churches of Galatia is that my single overriding passion was to destroy the church that Jesus built. That was his life. That was his life. He was like a runaway freight train, crushing everything in his path. The Apostle Paul would admit that he was a man without restraint. And then it happened. The most important part of this passage are these words. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace, 
was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. How do you account for the change in Paul's life? There's only one explanation. But when he, meaning but when God. That's it. This is where it started for Paul. By the way, dear ones, isn't that where it started with you? But when God. Paul says, God set me apart before birth. God knew me before I was ever conceived in the womb of my mother. Right? It wasn't a spur of the moment decision on God's part. No, God set me apart before I was even born for salvation, he says. It's a reminder to us that God is constantly engaged in our lives. Not just during our salvation or after our salvation. Do you understand that God was actively involved in your life even before you came to faith in Christ? That's what Paul is teaching us here. Isn't that what the Word of God teaches us? Shouldn't it be the death nail to the abortion industry for every person who claims to be a Christ follower? Jeremiah 1.5, before you were ever formed in the womb of your mother, I knew you. I don't know how any person can claim to be a Christ follower and be a supporter of the murder and slaughter of babies. Paul would later say in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless in his sight. And by the way, why does God do that? He says later in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And notice this phrase, which God prepared in advance or which God prepared beforehand. That we would walk in them. Before what? Before you were you. This is incredible. So it's not just a matter of are you a people pleaser or a God pleaser. It is simply this. Have you forgotten how God changed you? And then he concludes by saying, are you telling your story? Right? So Paul tells us he, he didn't immediately consult with anybody. He didn't go to Jerusalem. No, he went away to Arabia before he came to Jerusalem. All right, what did Paul do once he was saved? Did he enroll in seminary? No. Did he go to one of these churches and um, you know, maybe teach a Sunday school class back in Jerusalem? No, he spent three years in Arabia. Now, we don't know exactly what he did in those three years, but we can be sure of this. It was a time for Paul to rethink. And it was a time for Paul to retool. And that's what he did in Arabia. Now the question is raised, if it was a time of teaching during that three years in Arabia, who taught him? Who retrained him? Because he's already told us he didn't have any human teachers. That only leaves one option, doesn't it? He had a divine instructor. 
I mean, how awesome is that? Imagine taking a three-year course in Christian doctrine from the Holy Spirit himself. How awesome would that be? How awesome would it be for you to be able to come and sit in here and not have to listen to some fallen human man tell you things like this, but just to have the Spirit of God just illumine your heart to truth. That's what Paul had. And then notice Paul even says, when I went to Jerusalem, I spent 15 days with Peter. Why does he tell him? Why does he tell us I spent two weeks and a day with Peter? Because he wants to make sure everybody understands. I didn't come up with what was in my heart and in my mind to be able to write all of these letters like Colossians and Romans and Ephesians. No, Peter couldn't have given me that in 15 days. In fact, I'm not even certain Peter knew it himself. And God gave it to him. And that's what Paul's doing there. He's defending his apostleship. This is Paul's way of saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by man, but by God, and this is the gospel. Right? And by the way, that should be all of our stories. Not those same words, but I am a Christ follower of Jesus Christ because he changed and altered my life, and this is the beauty of the gospel. And that should be our our story. Now let me um, let me kind of wrap this up. Are you trying to please people or God? Is it your heart's desire to please God and honor His word, or do the thoughts and feelings and opinions of other peoples direct the way you think and what you do and what you say and so on and so forth? Does the opinions of others matter so much to you that you would be silent? about this incredible part of your life. Let me give you two good kingdom principles. Okay, number one, don't ever let approval drive your behavior. Don't ever let the approval of man drive your behavior. Paul didn't. In fact, Paul said to the church at Philippi, didn't he? I consider everything as loss. <laughs> so that I would know Christ and the power of the resurrection. And don't ever let approval drive your behavior. Secondly, don't ever let criticism devastate your soul. Not everybody is going to get it. Not everybody is going to understand. Not everybody is going to accept the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they may criticize you, they may slander your name, they may mock you and make fun of you. Dear ones, please do not let criticism devastate your soul. The gospel is glorious and the gospel is beautiful. Build your life upon it. You know, my, my story is not as dramatic as Paul's. My guess is your story is probably not as dramatic as Paul's. Maybe even not as dramatic as some of these who were baptized today. But let me tell you what you are this morning. You are a monument 
of grace. I am a monument of grace. I am a monument of grace. Say it with me. I am a monument of grace. Look to whoever's seated beside you and say, I am a monument of grace. You are monuments of grace. So I just want to encourage you to tell your story. What's a good way for you to do it? Here's, a, here's a, some things to remember. Number one, don't preach when you tell your story. Just tell your story. Just tell your story. Number two, be specific. You know, describe circumstances and um, how you felt and what you were thinking. You know, communicate. Man, you know, I was just going through my life and all of a sudden somebody sat down with me and shared with me the beauty of knowing Christ. So be specific. Number three, be clear and be simple. Number four, make sure you focus on how God changed your life. And number five, be brief. Right? If it takes you an hour to tell your story, stop. I'm not trying to make much of this, but it only took Paul 12 verses to tell his story. So it should only take you three to five minutes to tell yours. Just tell your story. And finally, always, when you tell your story, the goal is not to brag on you. The goal is not to lift you up. The goal is to brag on Jesus. The goal is to lift up Jesus. The goal is to say, I was dead in sin. And then Jesus, He changed my life. He altered my way. I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. A new boy, a new girl. Why? Jesus. Jesus, give.